Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good morning. This is Bill Glasgow. I'm Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. And this is Special Briefing brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute of Urban Research. I'm going to be joined in a few minutes by Susan Wachter, co-director of Penn IUR. And we've got an interesting panel for you today at a very interesting time, kind of a hinge point in history. Today, we're going to look at the outlook for cities and especially small to mid-sized cities. This is a very interesting time for cities because on top of the pandemic, the economic shutdown and all the fiscal stress that's caused. We're now seeing demonstrations and civil unrest around cities and communities, not just in the United States, but around the world in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, This is presenting new management problems for mayors, city councils, police, of course. And we have two mayors on the line, along with some of the country's top urban experts to discuss. Our guests today include Bruce Katz, Distinguished Fellow at the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University in Philly, and also director of the NOAC Metro Finance Lab. And I mentioned mayors. Kim Norton joins us from Rochester, Minnesota, where she is the mayor of a uh, 200,000-odd city in southwestern Minnesota and also home of the Mayo Clinic, one of the centers of COVID research. And we're also joined by Stephanie Miner, former mayor of Syracuse, New York. Stephanie piloted Syracuse through a really, really rough patch in the last recession. Stephanie is also on the Volcker Alliance board. We're going to bring you collective wisdom from mayors, from Bruce Katz, in addition from Susan Walker, our own urban expert. Susan's guy having some power issues in uh, the the Philadelphia suburbs, and will be joining us shortly. So why don't we turn right away to Bruce Katz. Bruce is, as I mentioned, an urbanist extraordinaire and has been working on a plan to help aid smaller cities and communities. There's a bill he's worked on called the Relief for Main Street Act, but Bruce has also proposed a new advisory commission on intergovernmental relations to help resume rational, sensible, constructive discussions between the federal government and states, counties, and municipalities, something that has been lacking really since the 1990s. So, Bruce, tell us about your agenda and tell us also how the the latest turn of events, the demonstrations, the civil unrest, complicates the COVID environment and the post-COVID environment. Well, thanks, Bill. And it's great to be on this call and it's great to be with the mayors. Obviously, we are dealing with a series of unprecedented crises here. And what they're doing is really testing our federalist system because the way the U.S. is organized, unlike many other countries, is we really do have power and responsibility for disparate areas of domestic life distributed across states, cities, counties, school districts, public authorities, and obviously uh, private, civic, and other actors. And what, what happens during these kinds of economic contractions is there's an enormous amount of focus on the federal government, because the federal government is a major investor, obviously, during this period. But to a large extent, whether we're gonna succeed in dealing with the public health crisis, dealing with economic contraction, particularly around small business, which I'll talk about, And now with the civil unrest, it really requires all levels of government and their private and and civic and university allies to have their their resources and their potential for action amplified and magnified. So we're getting like a civics lesson in the U.S. right now, a harsh one about literally who does what. You know, in other countries, when the pandemic hit and the economic shutdown began, There were literally formal agreements between different levels of government, 
uh, in Denmark, the national government, their regions, which deal with health, and then cities like Copenhagen would deal with so much of urban life like our cities. There were literally formal agreements. We've had essentially conference call federalism of sorts, usually between the federal government and the governors, and and just less structure, you know, constant iteration as opposed to any kind of constant focus. So what we've been following at Drexel since the get-go is the impact both with the economic shutdown and now with this unrest on small business, and particularly on Main Street businesses that rely on face-to-face encounters with customers and on black and brown-owned businesses. And what we've discovered really since the beginning here is that the relief actions that the federal government decided to undertake, particularly the Paycheck Protection Program, worked a very particular kind of loan product through existing financial institutions. And because small business is defined so broadly in the United States, any enterprise with less than 500 employees, as opposed to those Main Street kind of businesses that have, let's say, 20 or 10 or even less than five employees, to a large extent, there was a misalignment here between the relief that was chosen and the distribution channel that was chosen by the federal government, and particularly Black-owned businesses that are on the ground. And that's because those businesses tend to be very, very small, disproportionate number of sole proprietorships, low revenue, few capital reserves, and frankly, very little interaction with mainstream financial institutions. Um, They're more likely to deal with micro lenders or community development finance institutions. So what happened at the beginning of the pandemic crisis was that many cities, counties, and states began to set up local and state relief funds that were fit to purpose. They provided usually grant infusions to local small business, or they provided, as in Chicago and now in New York, more sophisticated loan products where CDFIs, community development finance institutions, were able to leverage public resources and debt from large financial institutions. The federal government, however, has not really to date used cities and counties and states as a distribution system. And so what we recommended, Senator Booker and a group of Republican senators and Democrats and Republicans on the House side, have come up with a Relief for Main Street Act, $50 billion in direct assistance for cities, counties, and states that would essentially top up these local and state relief funds and provide capital that's much more flexible through networks that are much more uh, grounded and connected to the kinds of small businesses that we're talking about. In addition, what this Relief for Main Street Act would do is not just deal with every small business on its own, but the business districts, the commercial corridors within which these enterprises tend to co-locate and concentrate. Because the last thing we want to have happen in our cities and our counties is when the pandemic begins to ease and we're literally able to go back to some kind of normalcy is to find out that these centers of commerce, these nodes of commerce in our cities and counties, and also centers of civic life are operating at 40 or 50 or 60% capacity. So this is capital coming from the federal government trying to amplify and activate all the distribution channels we have in this country, not just trying to take a one-size-fits-all loan product, uh, which is mostly geared to larger small businesses and only distributed through financial institutions. So that's hopefully something that in the next couple of weeks as Congress begins to focus on now these multiple crises that we're facing could enact that would serve both urban, suburban, and rural communities. This could be a unifying kind of investment. When we get to the fiscal side of this, obviously state, county, and city governments and special purpose entities at the local level have been hit very hard by the economic shutdown and the loss of sales and income tax in particular. Property taxes is a bit different as to how it's been affected to date. Here, what we've recommended is we go back to a system we used to have in the US. We used to have an advisory commission on intergovernmental relations. It was set up in 1959. It was shut down in a different time of partisanship in 1996. 
And what it basically was able to do was to be a convening table and a source of objective, independent evidence about the kind of fiscal impacts during a recession that were being felt by different levels of government, the repercussions of those impacts on spending and funding for essential services, police, fire, emergency medical, education, and other infrastructure investments, which for the most part, K through 12 infrastructure, first responders, these are funded at the local level. And if there's no state and local fiscal relief, there will be even a greater contraction of public employment, particularly around these essential services. So at a time of extreme partisanship, what we recommended is that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury set up a special fiscal federalist task force with Democrats and Republicans from the city level, the county level, state legislatures, and the state level, so that we could literally agree on the math and agree on what kind of funding in the next package is absolutely essential to be allocated to state, cities, and counties and the mechanism for that allocation so that the recession is not as prolonged and painful as it otherwise will be if there is not kind of this direct appropriation. The Federal Reserve Bank, as everyone knows, has taken incredible action on the lending side and the purchase of municipal debt and other forms of debt. But at this point in time, as Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, has repeatedly said, we need for the national government, for Congress, to basically provide relief for the fiscal losses at the at this state, city, and county level. So federalism is never an easy topic, particularly in a country as diverse and large and complex as ours is. But we're learning as we go about literally who does what. And as we go forward, my hope is we both shore up the fiscal revenues of states and local governments that through no fault of their own have seen tremendous losses in revenues but also use state, cities, and counties as a distribution mechanism for dealing with essentially as a small business-led recession going forward, particularly in the black and brown community. Thank you, Bruce. Interesting thing about the Intergovernmental Advisory Commission that, that, that Bruce has proposed, Tennessee has had one since the 1970s doing exactly what Bruce has referred to, evidence-based policy analysis and wisdom for the legislature and the executive branch it's worked remarkably well and is very durable, and it's a model for, for the United States. At the Volcker Alliance, we've come across them and, and had conversations with them and used their data in our infrastructure analysis. So anyway, you're listening to a special briefing brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Susan Walker, my colleague and co-director, is joining us now. I want to remind you, today's event is on the Volcker Alliance and the Penn IUR websites. All of our previous episodes, we're up to eight now, are available to you along with supporting documents on the Volcker Alliance Penn IUR websites. I encourage you to, to go there. Susan Walker, why don't you uh, step on and uh, introduce Mayor Norton? Yes, thank you very much, Bill, and thank you, Bruce, for your insightful comments about the relationship among federal, state, and local, and also the importance of small business and entrepreneurship going forward. And entrepreneurship is not just small business, of course, and mid-sized and large, but it's also in our government sector. And we have with us today an entrepreneurial mayor, Mayor Kim Norton of Rochester, Minnesota, who is known for the excellent work she has done working with not-for-profits and with leading in her own city as well as businesses, as well as cooperating across the government spectrum, now facing with the rest of the nation twin crises. Mayor Norton, please comment on how you are seeing the crises of today. So I think I should probably uh, start by saying thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am a relatively new mayor. I was in office a year prior to COVID striking our community. So I have been through one budget cycle with our city. And so I will give you the perspective, a lot of which has to do with the impact of COVID, frankly. 
Um, we're a town of about 117,000, 200,000 if you look broader in the region, the, the county region. We've had a strong fiscal standing. We've had a AAA rating as a city. We're a city that has been growing. The Destination Medical Center initiative, which is a $585 million initiative shared between the state and the city to help. The best way to do is an economic development package, but it's really help focused on helping the infrastructure in the city support the growth. Um, that's probably the easiest way to describe it. And that growth is surrounding our Mayo Clinic, which is the state's largest employer, certainly our cities as well. And it brings in 3.1 million visitors a year. And so when we talk about our budget, which is about 380, 390 million in the general fund, 587 million if you look at the whole enterprise funds, the impact when you're centered on medical tourism, which is kind of a, maybe a crass way to define it, but that's how I've heard it defined, people from all over the world and all over the country come to our community every year, stay in our hotels. We're very focused on hospitality, of course, to accommodate not only the medical patients, but their families while they're here, sometimes for extended periods of time. So what that means for a community like ours, our budget is primarily reliant on property taxes. We often worry about that and say, maybe we should diversify. But in times like this with the COVID pandemic, um, knowing that that'll have a long-term effect on us, property taxes are going to be pretty stable and we're not anticipating in the short term a large or any impact. Of course, long-term, depending on how this all works out, that could change. But so this year, I'm kind of knocking on wood that at least the largest portion of our budget is property taxes. But the second largest outside of the enterprise fund is our hotel tax. And you might imagine when our hotels, of which there are over 6,000 rooms, maybe in a large city that doesn't seem like much, but when you think about our community of 117,000 having 6,000 hotel rooms, that's pretty significant. And those are now, you know, at one time they're filling back up a little bit, but those were virtually empty. The impact on the, the budget from the hotel taxes is one of our largest budget line items is, is significant and devastating. We have already this year cut $26 million from our budget. We are particularly hit and it's decimated our, our transportation sector, transit, airport, parking. Our airports, like all airports, came to a standstill. So we don't have airport revenue. We don't have parking revenue. We don't have transit revenue because all those have taken a hit. And as was pointed out, I think very accurately by Bruce, was the discussion about small businesses and the help they have or haven't been able to get and that we have been trying to supplement for those small businesses because they weren't able, as really small Main Street businesses, weren't able to get the, the help they needed. And so part of what we did initially, uh, before we even realized the impact to our own budget, was to set some money aside for grant and loan programs um, of course, that other cities are doing as well. We did those as well. And so to try to help, because we now are looking at, we've cut $26 million this year. We have a hiring freeze on. We're managing our budget, thankfully, without having to do layoffs at this point. Looking ahead to the next year, but not just when you look at the information that says this may impact us in the long run, many years out, what does that mean? What does it mean to our not only our city budget, but also to the growth that we have with our economic development package that we're in the middle of doing. Right now, we're considering that kind of a recovery program. Um, but if the city doesn't recover and, and we don't have the long-term stability, that's concerning. And, and we're looking at that very carefully. So there's some other discussions that we can have, but I, I think one of the points that came up that I just will lay out there is the impact on federal and state funds. I mentioned transit and transportation funds. We have had, fortunately, some federal direct funding to our airport and our transit program, uh, $7 million of federal aid to transit and $2.5 million to our airport, which we've appreciated. The rest of the funding from the, the federal government only went to counties of 500000 directly, and we are not one of those. So we are not benefiting and we're waiting for the state to decide what, what a city like Rochester should get. Should it come to the city or the county? And of course, that builds a tension there. And also, and we can talk about this later, when the state is looking at how much support to give cities, there is this political urban-rural divide that sort of gets in the middle of that. And so we can talk a little bit more about that as we move on. But I hope that's given you a, a little overview of, of where we sit at a city, and I'm happy to uh, participate in the discussion moving ahead. 
Thank you, Mayor Norton. That's a great, really upbeat assessment of, of where you are, given uh, given the, the daily grind of your uh, duties. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate uh, Susan's introduction of you as an entrepreneurial mayor. Another entrepreneurial mayor, a former mayor, is Stephanie Miner. Stephanie and I first met when I was running state and local coverage at Bloomberg, and Stephanie came in Stephanie came in for a chat. We've since stayed friends and colleagues. She's now on the Volcker Alliance board and working with other mayors, such as uh, Mayor Norton, in her mentorship program. One thing I'd, I'd like, Stephanie, to, to, to focus on Syracuse being another, another mid-sized city with a lot of old city problems. What are the lessons from your experience in the last recession for mayors now, coping with many of the same problems you cope with, uh, aging, infra aging infrastructure, issues of income inequality, promoting small businesses. It may be writ larger now, but it's the it's the same darn stuff. So Stephanie, tell us about your, your experiences and your and your advice to the new class of mayors. The biggest lesson, Bill, that came out of the the aftermath of the Great Recession is that kind of like Bruce suggested, the assistance has to be directed to municipalities. In January 2010, I was just been elected mayor and attended a, a meeting at the White House. And one of my fellow senior mayors said to me, the feds have the money, states have the power, and cities have the problems. And that has really stuck with me because it's absolutely accurate. And at that meeting, these mayors who were core supporters of the, of the administration were challenging to the president and the vice president about the fact that the assistance had not flowed down to municipalities, that it had stayed at the state level. And given the kind of economic hardship that we are having at every level of government, states in particular, I think mayors are going to have to really say that any assistance has got to be directly targeted such that other levels of government cannot take it. And that's not to say that there's any malfeasance being involved, but New York State, as Bill knows well, before the pandemic hit, had anywhere between a four to six billion dollar deficit. The issues of what sales tax is going to do, lack of income tax is going to do to these state budgets is devastating. But in a state like New York, which I know the best, 64% of all state and local expenditures are handled at the local level. So when Bruce says, who does what? In New York, it's the local level that is providing these key services from public safety, as we're seeing play out in our streets with police and fire, to public works, which Mayor Norton talked about, about how infrastructure supports growth. Said another way, in cities, you know, these are water mains, trash removal, I can't be the former mayor of Syracuse without talking about snow removal. These are very basic services. And if there is not money to provide them, then the quality of life and the ability to build, have actual growth or to rebuild gets severely hampered. So the lessons that came out for me and I think for the other fellow mayors from the Great Recession is you cannot let other levels of government through our ambiguous system of federalism, you can't count on them having the revenues come down to the local level, that instead the advocates and people who are lobbying for this assistance at the federal level in particular, but also at the state level, will understand that the local governments, cities, counties, big, medium, and small, will need to have definitive lines in those bills so that the money and resources can come to places like Rochester, Minnesota, or Syracuse, New York, or Des Moines. Because without that, the pressure will just be too much on other levels of government to take that money for their needed bills that they have to pay as well. I'll just thank the mayor and, and pass it back to you and note the importance of what Mayor Stephanie Meyer has said. We are uniquely vulnerable in the United States and also uniquely gifted by this relationship which allows all levels of government to participate in serving the governed and how important that is, particularly services at the local level, to be at the local level to respond to the needs of citizens. But that puts us into a position of when there is a national natural disaster how do we solve this conundrum of getting aid to where it is needed to be spent? As the mayor so well said, the money is at the federal level. States have control, 
but it's the local level which will do the spending and needs to do the spending to get aid to citizens to restart the economy in this moment and also to bring assistance to minorities, black and brown, who's, who we've seen dramatic particular problems having to do with, with police violence, but also longstanding problems in terms of getting resources, and particularly resources for entrepreneurship. So how do we solve this problem? We have a number of questions that go broad and, and also right to this point, and I'll hand it back to you, Bill, to pose some of these questions. Well, thank you, Susan. I was, I was actually going to ask, ask you to, to take that up, but I want to remind everybody you're listening to Special Briefing, which is uh, co-sponsored by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Uh, I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance. That was uh, Susan Wachter, co-director of Penn IUR. And you can find all of our past episodes, as well as a replay of today's episode on the Penn IUR and the Volcker websites, Volcker Alliance websites, as well as supporting documents. So why, why don't I take the, the first question and then hand it back to, to Susan? And I, I think what Susan was describing is the kind of the disaster model that we've had in this country where FEMA swoops in. And I know we have FEMA listeners today and in our past sessions. FEMA comes in, provides aid that is distributed locally, handled locally. When it works well, it really works well. It hasn't worked well every time. But now we're, we're looking at a, at a national hurricane or national earthquake. The response has been much more, much more fragmented. So I'm going to ask a big question, and then we can zero in on, on some of the uh, smaller ones. And I think all the panelists' mics are open. The House passed the HEROES Act, $3 billion act, which uh, Leader McConnell in the Senate has, has said it is not going anywhere. The Senate is considering a variety of bills, including the SMART Act for a half a billion dollars, Bruce's proposal, so that what happens if what happens if Congress just decides, well, we're gonna we're gonna wait and see what happens, and with, and and we'll see you later in the summer. What happens if if aid isn't forthcoming to to states and cities? And I'm gonna leave that open for anybody to to jump in and take. Well, Bill, this is this is Stephanie. Our news today, as a matter of fact, in Syracuse is filled with proposed layoffs by the county. The fact that the sales tax receipts are coming down almost 40 percent less than they were year to date. And so they're talking about furloughs, cutting programs, laying off people and increasing taxes. But the reality is that you can't have this kind of loss of revenue and not expect it to have an impact on the level of services provided for a community, it will make the ability to bounce back from this recession or depression, whatever it has to be, that much longer and deeper. Pain and suffering. Our food banks in this area are already having unprecedented lines and running out of materials for it. So it's the short answer is continued human suffering. This is Mayor Norton, and I agree with that. And the additional I think impact that's so concerning is we don't know how long this pandemic is going to continue. We only know right now the impact it's had in our community. And I mentioned our hotels are empty. Our restaurants and, and bars and shops are empty because 3 million visitors a year are not coming. And we are trying to give out support loans. The larger state and federal loans has been mentioned is, are, have been much harder for our tiny businesses to get their hands on. And if we don't get some relief, we can't continue to provide financial support because we're struggling to manage our own budget. I mean, we're not mowing lawns. We've got a hiring freeze on. We hope not to lay off, but we probably will be facing that in the coming year if things don't turn around. And if we don't have the federal government, we've got little bits of money, but it's not going to sustain us over the long term because this this isn't over. And we sort of, I, I think some of us are out in the community, as I look around, people are acting like this is over. It's not over and it won't be over for some time and the impacts will continue. And we just absolutely have to have support, not only for our government to continue functioning, to keep people safe and healthy, but also for our small businesses who, and particularly the impact in our hospitality industry and what that means for some of our lowest income workers and our uh, black and brown communities, especially. And Bill, this is just, this is Bruce. I, I agree with everything both mayors said. I would say that Main Street businesses do not have the luxury of waiting and seeing what happens. Many have failed. There was an article in the Washington Post last week saying that 40 percent 
of Black-owned businesses may have already failed. And many are shuttered. And if they are open or reopened, they're operating at lower revenue with increased expenses. Because if you're going to operate as a face-to-face serving business, you've got to comply with health protocols, deep cleaning services. Obviously, what this crisis has shown is that if you don't have the technology infrastructure and the high-speed internet access, your ability to do e-commerce is greatly circumscribed. So there's a lot of expenses, little revenues. Anyone can do the math. Now, the good news is the federal government, Congress did approve revisions to the Paycheck Protection Program yesterday. House passed it, then Senate passed it by unanimous consent. So there is pressure building on the Congress to do more because Paycheck Protection Program was just a finger in the dike exercise. It doesn't deal with this reopen phase, which needs a different kind of capital, different kind of of loan products and other products that, frankly, many cities, counties, and states would be very well suited to provide. So I'm hoping that the urgency continues, as has been shown with the the PPP revisions, and then we move on to state and local fiscal relief, other small business relief, unemployment insurance, and beyond. Uh, let me ask one follow-up question, and then I'm going to turn the mic over to, to Susan for, for some more questions. States have to balance their budget. Of course, nobody's ever defined balanced budget, but states have to have a balanced budget. And one of, one of the techniques that states are using, and you see this certainly in New York, is to shift costs down to school districts, to school district counties, counties and cities. We had a question from David Penderit of the, the supporter report in Atlanta on how this plays out with school districts and what states can do to, to prevent them. But I think it's actually a, a broader question. And I'm wondering how the mayors are seeing this and, and how Bruce and Susan are seeing this playing out nationally of just shifting costs from, from here to there without really solving any problems. Well, this is Mayor Norton, and I can say, as someone who served in a legislature for 10 years prior to being mayor, and it was during the Great Recession, that happens. I faced many angry counties and cities over the time as the state struggles to balance its budget and is able to provide less for the municipal governments. Now, as mayor, I'm praying that that doesn't happen, knowing that, that the, the state has to balance its budget too. And so again, this this looks back to, can we turn to the federal government for help to maintain our state so that it doesn't get shifted down to, to cities and counties? Or is the federal government, do they want to give it to the state or do they want to look beyond that and make sure that it gets down to cities and counties itself? And I think that's a struggle they'll be dealing with for the years to come. Yet, I would just add with Mayor Norton, my experience was that that was exactly the primary way that these issues got addressed, because in the short term, the state could sort of take a victory lap and say that they weren't making any hard cuts and just say that the the cities had to figure out how to do that in New York State. This problem, though, the economic impact of this is so deep and so vast, it is hard for me to comprehend how they're going to do that. With the example of before the pandemic, New York State had a Medicaid shortfall of $75 billion, and they were saying that they were going to push a lot of those costs down to the localities and make them cut that. Well, then we had the pandemic hit with all of the increased expenditures because of the pandemic and then all of the lost revenue because hospitals couldn't do elective surgeries. I just, I don't think that there are margins. There weren't big margins anyway to begin with in local governments. There certainly are going to be none now. So I just, I can't see how these kind of problems can be handled with short-term fixes without having immediate devastating impacts. Which is, I would say, just why I would circle back to say that mayors and others who are advocating for cities need to make sure that any assistance that is proposed is directed towards municipalities and local governments because the states have dire economic problems of their own. And if there is money that is unclaimed or hasn't been spoken for, they're going to take it for their own problems. Yeah, Bill, I mean, I think if the federal government does not act, this is their role. This is the special role that they play during economic contractions and particularly these kind of unprecedented multi-layered contractions. What I'm basically advocating for is a 
lock everyone in a room, you know, <laughs> uh, lock the federalist system in a room with bipartisan representation from all levels of government so they can at minimum just agree on the math, right? In the end, it's not that complicated. We're a sophisticated economy and a sophisticated federal republic. So we do understand what the disparate kinds of fiscal impacts we've basically experienced here. And then we can make some political choices, but they have to act and they have to act soon. Because if they don't act, what is already gonna be a brutal recession will be prolonged and even more painful. And then cities will have even more challenges that fall on their doorstep without the resources to deal with it. So, and the sooner we get small businesses back online, the more revenues can flow, but that requires also some directed, and in some cases, more flexible resources than we provided today. Bruce, uh, your answer and answers of the mayors have provoked additional questions in my mind that I think might be helpful for our audience. But let me start by going back to the question on regarding K-12 education. I think that part of what's behind this question is, is it possible to preserve investments for the future while cutting back on what's less necessary, painful, but less necessary for investing in the future. I think that's a call, of course, that we don't undermine opportunity for our young particularly, which will have long-term consequences, not only for their future and for inclusion, but also for economic growth for the entire economy. So is it possible to carve out K through 12 and other activities that are investments for the future. And then let me turn, I have additional questions that follow on, but let me just ask that for both mayors and and Bruce. Well, I would tell you in New York State, no, it is not possible to just, that is, I think it is the largest expenditure that New York State has is for education. I think the question can be, that's what you hope those people in elective office and advocates go through and try to manage this governing challenge, but to hold an entire category like public education harmless, given the economic impact that we're having, at least in New York State, just financially will not be possible. In terms of, there's sort of an immediate and then an intermediate question, given your focus on really investments for the future. So the immediate question is to maintain as best as we can you know, service levels are close there too. And and the mayor's pointed out how difficult that's going to be. At some point in time, maybe it's the fall, maybe it's the early part of next year, you get to what is the typical kind of counter-cyclical investments that tend to be future-oriented in an economic cycle. So those will be investments in infrastructure. Those will be investments in innovation. And those will be investments in human capital. In the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2008-2009, there were significant investments in future-oriented efforts around technology credentialing through community colleges. And that program, which was highly successful, could be brought back to bear. Uh, The question on infrastructure, given this crisis, is whether we'll focus just on shovel-ready, but frankly, shovel-worthy projects. Uh, particularly that take account of what this crisis has shown is a a digital divide that's profound and pronounced. And then with innovation, I think many cities, counties are already using what is a small level of funding from the Economic Development Administration, $1.5 billion, to begin to bulk up and buttress innovative, advanced industries, many of which have jobs that could be um, accessed by people with community college credentials. So at some point, we're going to get the counter-cyclical investments. And if we're going to prepare ourselves for the next decade, which will be a decade of tremendous technology disruption, automation, artificial intelligence, and so on, we need to be making smart federal investments in what is, a, again, one of their general, precedented, tried-and-true responsibilities. I would just add to what Bruce is saying and underline as a, as a former mayor, that unless the federal government steps in to help us. They have to make this investment. So just to be exactingly precise, that I don't think you can hold harmless public education and our investments for the future 
without the federal government stepping in and providing assistance. And I will just add my thoughts to this as as someone who's been advocating for the public education and higher education for most of my adult life, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, the federal government has always underfunded education and particularly the infrastructure. The state has pulled back, has held steady its funding for particularly higher education. And if we don't have the innovations that some of the others have been talking about, our education system will be at risk. We must have more support from the federal government to provide funding supports that the states are not going to be able to do. And, you know, at least in my community, the city has literally nothing to do other than maybe approving land for those public education and private education entities. So it isn't a function in Minnesota of our cities, but my history in other areas has led me to share those thoughts that really aren't mayor thoughts. They're just Kim thoughts. Thank you very much for that, for both mayors and to Bruce. And I'll come back to the federal response, but let me, and the nature of that federal response, but let me ask another elucidating question. There's now a lot of talk about actually a V-shaped recovery. And indeed, certainly the stock market is predicting, right or wrong, a V-shaped recovery and a strong one at that. Even so, full recovery is uh, economist consensus is not predicted until 24-25. But can you help us understand even if the economy has a V-shaped recovery, that is, if we see job growth coming into the third quarter being dramatically higher, what's the intermediate run experience of cities in response to overall recovery from recessions? Is there a lag? My understanding is that there is a substantial lag. So let's say if there is a V-shape, what does that mean? Is a V-shape for uh, cities? Help us understand that. Shall we start with you, Mayor Norton, on, on your predictions for your city? Oh, I'm trying to get my head around this. I'm not sure I have a proper response to this. One of the things that I learned through the Great Recession is it was not a V-shaped recovery, although Minnesota did fare better than many other states in that recovery. For our community, we're in the middle of, as I mentioned early on, a infrastructure investment and infrastructure and economic development. And We're trying to level out that V, flatten out the bottom of the V, if you will, by utilizing the access we have to tens of millions of dollars from the state, a commitment they made to our community, which, of course, we all have to be aware can disappear as quickly as it's given in uncertain times. But assuming that that, those dollars continue to come, that we do construction, building, infrastructure, sewer work. It's not always pretty work, but it will keep people employed and will help us be able to weather the the lower part of the V so that when we get through that, we will be prepared for the upswing. Those are my just my quick thoughts on that. If I can just interject for a second, the state of Utah is actually shifting its infrastructure investments from pay-as-you-go to bonding. And this, this is a state that is a rare issuer of general obligation debt. So it's a noteworthy switch that they want that they want to see this very important source of support for local communities as well as the state economy continue even in the face of uncertain federal aid and uncertain revenue outlook. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that we're, we're listening to special briefing uh, brought to you by Volcker Alliance and NIUR. Please stop by our respective websites for a replay of today's webinar and all the past ones as well. Susan, you want to take yes, the Yes, I, I do have another question. question. And we, actually, we well, I hope perhaps we can have even room for two more. If not, one will do. But Bill, I'm going to pose this to you as well. Do you think that states and localities who can should be borrowing more at this time, given the unprecedentedly low interest rates that are out there in general and for good credit are extraordinarily historic at historic lows that we haven't seen before and are not likely to see in the future? Should they be borrowing more if they can? That's been a, a really good question, and I'd love to hear the, the mayor's answer. That's so I'll just give a very short 
answer. Interest rates have been low for a long time. We've seen massive refinancing, refunding of municipal debt. So uh, states and localities have saved a lot of money. But in a way, debt has become a bad word because when you take on new debt, you have to have the revenues to pay for it over 30 well, years. Of course. So the question is. Yes, yes, debt is very cheap. And the federal government can, can borrow even more cheaply, but basically for nothing. So in a way, why shouldn't the federal government be borrowing and passing the spoils on to states and localities? It's a tough question, and I think it really depends on each locality's ability to, to shoulder debt, as well as many have debt limits, many have restrictions on what they can borrow for. So it's not a yes-no question, and, may, and maybe the mayor's a better answer. I, I just want to, to clarify and take advantage of low interest rates for investment for the future. So... I would tell you that this came up across the country with pension issues and whether it was appropriate to borrow for pensions. And some municipalities did that to really had disastrous impacts. While, you know, in an antiseptic classroom, the issue of borrowing during this kind of economic downturn that we have is, I think, an interesting economic question. The reality of it in the environments that I have been part of is that it is a release valve to make really fiscally bad decisions because the pressure is going to be on politicians, elected officials who don't want to make these really tough decisions to just borrow for operating costs and hope that, as my friend Richard Ravage says, that the dog will bark one day. What we have seen time and time again is that when you offer these short-term solutions to these long-term structural issues, we don't end up with good consequences. The decisions at the end of the process just become even harder than they once were. So my instinct and default position would be, no, don't borrow for operating costs, confront those issues, or make sure that other people understand the impacts of those issues so that you don't make the decisions that have to be made five or 10 years down the road even worse. So for the state of Minnesota, I can say our legislature works a budget year and a bonding year, and this was their bonding year. They were blindsided, as we all were, by the pandemic, And to date, they did not pass a bonding bill. They had agreed on about a billion dollars. There are, yes, politics involved, but they do this every year. It was going to be a little bit larger this year. There is a formula that they follow, and they're staying within that. So it's not going to be more than perhaps they would have. And they're coming into a special session on June 12th to see if they will do that as a state. For us locally, I think we would not necessarily go out and bond for something that we were not planning on doing anyway. We would not bond for something that is not infrastructure and has a permanent long-term benefit for our community. And as I mentioned before with Destination Destination Medical Center, that is, those aren't bonding dollars. Those are direct appropriations that we're allowed to spend, which allows us to keep development going so that when we come out of the recession, and as we come out of it right now, um, we're, do, we're actually bumping, moving things up so we can have the development while nobody's downtown <laughs> in our downtown area because people are at home, so that when we're done with that, uh, the community can get back up and running. There is a downside in that it, if, you know, and I don't think it will happen in our community, but if you did that and the economy didn't come back, you would have put a lot of investment, if it's not just infrastructure, you would have put investment into some projects that could sit empty and unused and not benefit the community. So um, right now we're looking very carefully at just spending those dollars on infrastructure that will be there for the long term. Susan, I would just say that for a particular group of cities and metropolitan areas, we're going to see large transfers of commercial real estate that are either going to be privately driven as they were after 08, 09, or potentially we could see urban land banks or other special purpose vehicles be used to acquire properties that are distressed and repurpose them as affordable or workforce housing, which is an enormous need, and particularly in a technology-leading city and metropolitan economy. So the question is, there are some issues which are ubiquitous and uniform as we think across cities and metros, and then industry profiles, the sort of level and scale of the affordability issues. I mean, these are really different kinds of issues. And just the institutional infrastructure that exists in different cities, not within general purpose government, but special purpose authorities and quasi-public corporations. It's a lot of variance in the U.S. This could be a time for cities and counties to do their own 
sort of look within and say, are we getting the maximum out of our current structure? I would say the answer in many places is no. And this could be a way on the, you know, for example, with urban land banks and public asset corporations to really unify, integrate and make some strategic acquisitions. That is a promising note to come out of the extreme difficulties that are facing cities and localities, states, and indeed the entire nation. Bill, I turn it over to you to remind the audience of our next gathering a week from today. Well, thank you, Susan. Thank you, panelists. It's been a wonderful discussion. We have another special briefing lined up for next week. We're going to look at some big picture issues, federal aid, the shape of the economy. We're going to talk about that V-shaped, U-shaped, or Nike swoosh-shaped recovery with Mark Zandi, uh, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, Austin Goolsby, uh, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration and now professor at the, the Booth School at the uh, University of Chicago, and Juliet Tennert, who works with the Volcker Alliance on state budget issues, but is known best as the former Utah State Chief Economist, uh, State Budget Director, and now Chief Economist at the Ken Gardner Institute at the University of Utah, which promises to be a very, a, a very pointed discussion. I hope you will join us. Uh, on the Volcker Alliance or Penn IUR websites. And on behalf of uh, Susan Walker and Penn IUR, this is Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance. Thank you so much, panelists. Thank you, audience, for joining us. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.